Often when I inherit a student from another teacher, I hear these strange comments like, oh, uh, Bach is very useful for the fingers or its, its exercises. Or my least favorite statement of all, Bach is mathematical. As a mathematician pianist friend of mine says, that shows that the person has no knowledge of music or mathematics. Um, so Bach is living and breathing music and it has to be played with finesse, with passion, with uh, the widest possible range of human emotions. Hi, I'm Ben Capolo, and welcome to All Keyed Up, Creative Conversations for Today's Piano Teachers. Thanks so much for joining. Today, I will be speaking with Mark Antonio Baroni. Mark Antonio Baroni has given solo recitals in New York, Washington, Philadelphia, San Francisco, London, Moscow, and St. Petersburg. During the last quarter of the 20th century, he frequently performed as soloists with major orchestras, including the Philadelphia Orchestra, the Moscow Symphony Orchestra, the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, and the Baltimore, St. Louis, and Houston Symphony Orchestras. A devoted champion of new music, he has given the world premieres of piano works by Ingrid Arauco, Richard Broadhead, David Crum, George Crum, David Finko, Ulysses Kay, Gerald Levinson, Philip Manival, George Rockberg, Andrew Rudine, and Melinda Wagner. Mr. Baroni is a member of the Lenape Chamber Ensemble, 1807 and Friends, the Casimir Trio, and the Craftsbury Chamber Players. He has taught piano at the Bryn Mawr Conservatory of Music, of which he is assistant director since 1980, and he is an associate in performance at Swarthmore College. He studied with Eleanor Sokoloff at the Curtis Institute of Music and with Leon Fleischer at the Peabody Conservatory of Music. Among his other teachers were Susan Starr and Leonard Shore. He was also my piano teacher in college. Tony, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. It's great to reconnect with you. Today is the second of two interv interviews I will be releasing about Bach in honor of his somewhat disputed birthday towards the end of March. I'd like to spend most of today talking about teaching Bach. I'd like to start from introducing Bach. When we took lessons, I started with you on Bach's invention number one in C major, but I know there are pieces of his that are perhaps a bit easier. What are your thoughts on the best Bach pieces to start out with? Well, in fact, I often delay my approach to Bach uh, with a student, especially a young student, until the student has done a lot of other music from the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, part of my reason for that is that I want students to become familiar with a broader musical language. Uh, I, I, and therefore, I do introduce 20th century music fairly early on. Another reason is that I tend to work, I don't tend to, I do work exclusively from urtext editions in all my teaching, even with young students. And therefore, I think it's really important in teaching a student how to decipher a score to be working on music where the composer, him or herself, has indicated dynamics and articulations fairly thoroughly before I uh, progress backwards in time to 18th century music where the performer or the student with the help of the teacher has to make uh, a lot of those decisions independently. So first we focus on the reading of such things and then on the creation of such things. So before I start teaching Bach, I usually work with a student on uh, some Bartok, usually microcosmos, 
books one, two, and maybe three. Um, usually my approach to Bach happens around the time that the student gets to book three of Microcosmos. I also love Kabalevsky's teaching pieces, Opus 39 and Opus 27. Um, and so for a student who learns music quickly, um, I will often intermix the, the Kabalevsky and the Bartók. For 19th century, of course, the Schumann album for the young. Occasionally, the Tchaikovsky children's album, uh, but not as often. I, I feel that those pieces are not as cleverly designed for young players. The most cleverly designed of all from the 19th century, in my opinion, are the Burgmüller 25 Etudes Opus 100. Yes, I've discussed those on the podcast before. Really? Yeah. Well, I love those pieces. And I, I think of Burgmüller and Kabalevsky as sort of being in the same league. They may not have been the greatest composers of their generation, but the way they wrote for kids is just fantastic. So we covered those things. We also cover uh, all major and minor scales. And uh, usually I will have started a student on major and minor triad arpeggios by the time I introduce the first Bach. All that to say that I usually start with the inventions, even though they are harder than some other pieces. Again, in the case of a student who learns really quickly, I may have already uh, mixed in some of the pieces from the Anna Magdalena Bach notebook, most of which, as you know, are not by Bach, but they can be a useful adjunct to teaching about how to decide about things in 18th century music. And often before I start the inventions, I will have taught one or two of the early Haydn sonatas. So yeah, two-part inventions are normally the first thing by J.S. Bach that a student of mine approaches. Yeah, there are many challenges that students experience playing Bach, and that makes sense for you to say that you delay it to an extent until you've worked through all these other pieces. And I do want to talk today about some of the challenges in Bach that might be responsible for wanting to delay these pieces until a little later in their musical developments. One of the central challenges in Bach's music is the complete independence of the two hands. Unlike so much music written for intermediate level pianists, where the bulk of the difficult material is placed in the right hand and the left hand is much simpler, the two-part inventions and most of Bach's music have material of equal importance and equal difficulty in both hands. How do you prepare students for the somewhat ambidextrous nature of most of Bach's music so that when they encounter these inventions, they aren't being taken from zero to a hundred? Yeah. Well, uh, again, I think Bartók is a fantastic preparation for that because his music in, in these early volumes of Microcosmos is easier than the Bach inventions, but it demands a lot of the same things. And so I'm very strict with my students when they're even playing the, the simplest pieces from book one, that they learn to shape melodies dynamically, that they play with nuance, and above all, that they articulate precisely according to Bartók's slurs. I've become much more a stickler for that as I've gotten older. When I first started teaching 40 years ago, I wasn't so concerned with that. I would, I would let students separate between slurs or play all legato or whatever, and, and my conscience began to bother me. So, um, and, and also hearing from some real experts in Bartók's music made me realize, no, we should be playing this exactly as it's written. So uh, if they can play uh, a, a two-voice piece uh, in, in second or third book of Microcosmos, by that point, I'm fairly confident that they can approach a Bach invention um, without becoming extremely frustrated. Um, yeah, that makes sense, that progression of introducing two-part writing or um, 
independent hands in Bartok as a sequence leading into Bach, especially in the case of Bartok, when, as you say, the articulations are more written in. And I understand that philosophy of wanting to be a stickler for the articulations in Bartok as a preparation for delving into Bach. Um, so I want to talk about now, let's say the student ha of yours has worked through Bartok, has worked through all of the major and minor scales, and they're ready to go to tackle Bach, and they're working on the first inventions. What does a first lesson with you on Bach look like? What are some of the key points you make from the get-go and some of the first questions you ask? Well, uh, the, the first thing that I do is talk about the, this wonderful combination of the horizontal and the vertical, mm -hmm. Bach's counterpoint. So um, I will have talked with a student already about what harmony is, what a cadence is, what points of arrival feel like in music. And so to be able to say, okay, you, here you have two completely independent melodic lines, but when you stack them up vertically, they are implying harmony. Sometimes even a melody within itself, of course, can imply harmony. So um, having said that, and having shown that by, by playing little examples, I then will immediately address the question of how you interpret uh, the, the melodic entities in, in a Bach invention. Mm -hmm. So that takes me to this question of articulation, um, yeah. which for the most part we have to decide for ourselves. Bach did write slurs in a couple of the inventions, but not very systematically. Um, and so my idea is to show how the choice of what to connect and what to disconnect can underline for the player and the listener the actual motivic content of a piece. My decisions about articulation in Bach, I have to confess, are not based on really thorough reading of contemporary treatises. They're much more based on my knowledge of Bach's own slurring in other pieces. And I see that Bach's slurring, I think, can be divided into three categories. There is what I call motivic slurring, where the same melodic motive is consistently slurred. For example, in the Allemande of the E major French suite, Bach is really careful to write a slur over every stepwise three-note figure, whether it starts on the beginning of the beat or on the second note of the beat. So... And so on. Um, there's also what I would call just general legato slurring, as in the F minor invention, where he will slur an entire measure of 16th notes. Just to say, play this legato. And then there's what I call rhythmic slurring, where the slurring is much more, has much more to do with where something falls within a beat or a bar than what the intervallic content of the music is. So actually, the A minor violin concerto is a great source of information about how Bach slurred things. And the last movement of that he simply slurs the first two of every three notes in that fugue subject. So when I'm looking at a Bach invention, I'm usually mostly showing the student how the motivic kind of slurring could be applied. So you mentioned the C major invention, actually a really great example. Um, so, so much of this theme depends on thirds. Um, 
either filled in or actual leaps, which Bach then, as you know, later went back and filled in with stepwise motion in a second version of the piece. So the first seven notes of that very familiar theme are a third filled in stepwise, a third that neighbors that third, and a return to that third. So my own uh, idea about how to play this is that one would slur thirds. each yeah. of those okay. thirds. No. Then the next two, and then the next two. And so... And every time that motive returns, you would continue slurring the thirds together. Exactly. I'm very pedantic about that. They say that consistency is the refuge of the unimaginative. And I guess I'm consistent enough to be considered unimaginative. <laughs> but especially for teaching, I think it's really important to, to find every instance of right. motives in their original form or in their inversion or in their augmentation. Yeah, in that piece, is it does, that he slows it down and turns it into the accompaniment. Exactly. So that when the when this theme gets inverted, what had been the first four notes of the become and he keeps going with that and then turns it into a six note idea. And I can see how doing consistent articulation across those would help show the sort of motivic consistency in the piece. Exactly, exactly. So that tends to be the first thing I discuss. And then I will go on and write in slurs in the student's copy of the music in pencil. So if, if the student has later, uh, later in life different ideas, he or she can erase what I wrote and do something different. Right. I'm very interested in this idea of working across the different motives and applying consistent articulation to all the different motives. Um, I remember in my lessons with you on the Bach invention, the articulation approach was extremely rigorous, as you're describing, and did involve a lot of some of the motivic analysis that you're describing. It reminds me of this uh, Schoenberg quote about Bach, that Bach taught him the art of creating the whole from a single kernel. And in many performances I see of students playing Bach, I'm not sure if they totally are getting that element of Bach. And I think students sometimes play variations and even restatements of earlier motives without realizing what's going on. And a lot goes over their heads. How do we as teachers avoid this in our studios? And can you talk about the process of getting your students to appreciate some of the whole from a single kernel idea that Schoenberg described? Well, I think very simply pointing out how a piece like this C major invention is created from so few notes which are then transformed and repeated and developed. Um, so uh, once a student has done this work, I think it's almost impossible for the student not to hear what's yeah. going on in the piece. So after I mark in all these slurs, um, which I, by the way, learned to do on an iPad so that I can do it remotely <laughs> this year. Okay. Um, so uh, then I had the student practice, and this is unusual for me, practice the entire piece one voice at a time for at least the first week. Mm -hmm. Usually I tell students, oh, play hands together right away, get a sense of how the piece sounds all together, and then go back and separate the hands if you need to for practice. With the Bach invention, I do the exact opposite. They work on the linear aspect of it first and learn what to listen for. I'm convinced that the hardest thing about playing Bach is hearing it, not playing it. Mm -hmm. So if the student hears all of these motives um, and then 
articulates them consistently, and then we talk about shaping them consistently with dynamic nuance, then putting the hands together, the student's ear demands that those elements remain in place. But if you put the hands together too soon, uh, it, it becomes more about the vertical the harmonies, the physical coordination. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So eventually when I move on to three-part inventions or fugues, I still take that approach. And in fact, I have them learn one voice at a time with any fingering at all. It doesn't matter if it has any relationship to the final fingering. Then two voices at a time, one in the right hand and one in the left, all the way through the piece. So it feels like playing three separate two-part inventions with the same theme. Then figuring out where the alto goes in the right hand and where in the left, and putting the same two voices, putting the two voices in the same hand, where that's actually going to happen in the, in the final performance, and ultimately playing three voices together. And although a lot of students feel really intimidated by playing a three-voice piece, once they've gone through that process, they almost always find the final stage of putting it together the easiest part of all. That sequence makes complete sense to me. Um, I'm going back to a second for what you were saying earlier about how when you work through students on articulations, perhaps one voice at a time, you sometimes slur things based on the motive, sometimes rhythmic, sometimes general slurring. Uh, one topic that I'm always thinking about on this podcast and that I've spoken with many other guests about is teacher-centered approaches versus student-centered teaching. And I think we can all agree there are times for each. And so with this idea in mind, can you talk of how active of a role you play when you're working with students on articulation in box? Like when they first start out, do you simply tell them what articulations to play and why, and then gradually you pull back as they've explored more works by Bach? Or do you start out by asking questions and trying to guide them towards figuring out a sensible articulation? Your question reminds me of a story that a colleague of mine used to tell about a family friend who used to offer his daughter a choice. Do you want to go to bed or do you want to be carried to bed? <laughs> so, yeah, the choices are pretty limited at first. Okay. Um, so what you said a moment ago is really exactly what I do. For the first several Bach pieces or classical era pieces, whatever, I'm really dictating everything. Mm -hmm. I want to show how a certain approach works. And I feel strongly as a teacher that I can't teach effectively by teaching something that I do not believe in myself. First, I have to show the student what I find beautiful, what I find satisfying, and try to share my delight in those things with the student. I find that after a student has done several inventions, then on the next one, I can be like Sherlock Holmes saying to Dr. Watson, you know my methods, apply them. And very often the students will come up with something that is slightly different from what I would have done myself, but is based on the principles that I've shown them. And that makes me really happy. Now, of course, if the student does something that I think really sounds terrible, I'll say so. But it's, it's very strongly guided at first and then gradually uh, becoming freer. Um, and of course, by the time they get to playing the well-tempered clavier or French suites, for example, which are a little bit less strictly contrapuntal, I'm talking about the suite movement, then I, I leave them on their own quite a lot. 
this relates to one issue that I had when I first started teaching, which is that I assumed that student-centered teaching was always the way to go. And so I would have these long moments of trying to guide students towards concepts that they just were not in any position to realize. And I think I've realized over time that there needs to be a place for teachers to hold the student's hands kind of in the way that you're describing, and then gradually they can pull off the reins. Switching gears a little bit, the last element that I'd like to talk about regarding Bach is history. I think it's safe to say that students performing Bach should have some knowledge of the Baroque era and of the harpsichord. And there's also some interesting conversations to be had with students about applying modern resources to Bach's music that were unavailable to him, like the damper pedal. In my experience, my students tend to be very interested in history in the sense of fun facts, but it's more hit or miss when we talk about any of the type of historical knowledge that could inform their playing. Can you speak a bit to whether this is an issue that you encounter, and can you talk about how you would tackle speaking to pre-college students about music history compared to how you might with an older Swarthmore student? Well, uh, I, I try not to presuppose that students know anything in particular about music history. So of course, we always talk about how the style of Western music evolved over time. Um, and especially if I've been working backwards through the centuries with them. Yeah, with Bartok first, then Bach. To, to show how well. So now you, you've played something by Kabalevsky and you've played something by Bartok. But now listen to the way Schumann wrote. This is quite different. And now listen to the way Haydn wrote. And now listen to the way Bach wrote. I don't, I definitely don't want them to be trying to imitate the sound of the harpsichord or the clavichord or the organ or whatever when they're playing the piano any more than I would like them to imitate the sound of yeah. the oboe or the cello. Right. You know, so I do talk a lot about how the piano can sound like a lot of different things, including the human voice, if you caress the keys in just the right way. Um, but we're never in my studio trying to approximate the sound of Bach as it would be played on another instrument. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that we should avail ourselves of the resources of the piano when it's suitable. So you mentioned the, the damper pedal. I have no fundamental uh, objection to the use of the damper pedal in the music of Bach. It's just, for the most part, it doesn't accomplish anything very helpful. Um, mm. Bach's music is not written in such a way that the use or the copious use of the damper pedal makes it sound any more beautiful. In fact, it tends to obscures a lot of it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I myself, when I play a saraband, for example, feel free to use the pedal because I think it, you know, it gives a little bit of warmth to the sound that it needs. But I would very rarely use pedal in a courant. Um, so uh, it's totally based on the, the needs of a particular piece of music. Before we go today, do you have any other advice for our listeners um, about handling box works effectively in their teaching studios? The main thing is to treat it like music. Often when I inherit a student from another teacher, I hear these strange comments like, oh, uh, Bach is very useful for the fingers or its, its exercises, or my least favorite statement of all, Bach is mathematical. As a mathematician pianist friend of mine says, that shows that the person has no knowledge of music or mathematics. Um, so Bach is living and breathing music, and it has to be played with finesse, with passion, 
with uh, the widest possible range of human emotions. And to that end, I very often have students listen to some of Bach's vocal music of, of, of different characters, you know, so that they can hear the way he sounds when he's setting a joyful text or when he's setting an extremely sorrowful text. Um, and how we on the piano can bring those things to life, even in a sparsely textured piece like a two-part invention. Yeah, I'm, uh, I don't know if you know the pianist Marvin Blickenstaff, uh, but he's coming on the podcast next week. And one of his big things is, as you say, that no matter what the piece is, what stage of learning it is, what, how old the student is, always prioritize expression and emotion above all else, no matter what. And I think that speaks to some of what you're saying. Uh, finally, can you tell us a little bit more about what you're up to now? And is there any website or organization that you'd like to direct our listeners to in order to learn more about you? Well, I, I don't have a website. I'm very old-fashioned about that, but uh, I can tell you a little bit about what I've been doing this year. I, I'm continuing to teach remotely uh, at, for the Bryn Mawr Conservatory of Music, which is a school in suburban Philadelphia founded by my father in 1934 and for Swarthmore College. Um, and uh, it's been a, a wonderful learning experience to learn to teach by Zoom and FaceTime this year. Um, I have been blessed. Uh, I'm incredibly grateful. I have had some really great performance opportunities this year, even in a very difficult year. The Lenape Chamber Ensemble, which you mentioned, has uh, put on several virtual concerts. And uh, maybe the highlight of the whole year was uh, in December when the Philadelphia Chamber Music Society presented me in a virtual recital on which I premiered a brand new work of George Crumb, a 10 wow. cycle, uh, based on his some of his favorite paintings, Metamorphoses, Volume 2, uh, which he wrote for me, I'm honored to say. Um, and so that really uh, was a tremendous joy and, and a tremendous honor. And uh, we're hoping to record that piece for Bridge Records sometime later in 2021. Congratulations on all of those successes. I'd definitely be interested in hearing this George Crumb piece. Before we close, I did want to say, at the risk of sounding like a bit of a suck-up, part of what inspired me to make this podcast is because I believe piano teachers can play a huge role in the lives of their students, and that's certainly been your effect, of course, with many students, but also with me. I teach right now about 60 students per week, and every one of those lessons is in some way influenced by you. So thank you for everything you've done, and thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Ben, and thanks for your kind words. It means a lot to me. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to All Keyed Up. I'll see you next time.